the church was given the witness in the New Testament of one God, but their worship was around, you know, three, you know, tritheism. Okay, in other words, they inherited the monotheism of their Jewish heritage. Okay, one God, but they bore witness to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The reality of it, they were praying it <laughs> before they understood it. And it took about three or four centuries uh, plus to work through the issues around the Trinity uh, to where we have our doctrine today. So, anyway, we're going to listen to the Word of God that comes to us beginning John 15, 9 through 12. Listen to the Word of God. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then verse 26. When the advocate comes, sometimes it is translated comforter, when the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify, because you have been with me from the beginning. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, and you will see me no longer. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Uh, for this reason I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our heart and our mind and our eyes that through your word proclaimed we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's kind of a shame the kids are gone because uh, this next thing would be something that, but it's probably they don't know this song, but some of you may remember this from your children or your grandchildren. But how many of you remember Schoolhouse Rock, the television show? Schoolhouse Rock, okay. All right. And on the very first episode, they had this song. Now, some of you who are Blind Melon fans may remember the Blind Melon version, okay? So I'm, we're going to sing it. I'm going to go through this a little bit, okay? You don't need to bring out your lighter, okay? We don't need to have an in-concert thing. But maybe if you remember it, it's, it's a really catchy tune. Remember, it goes, three is a magic number. Because three is a magic number. Yes, it is. It's a magic number. Somewhere in the ancient mystic trinity, you get three. It's a magic number. Then it goes on. Past and the present and the future, faith, hope, and charity, the heart and the brain and the body gives you three. It's a magic number. And then the first we probably all remember, a man and a woman had a little baby. You, yes, they did. 
They had three in the family, and that's a magic number. Right. Yeah, you don't need to applaud. It wasn't that good. <laughs> but that's, that's, you know, it's pretty amazing, actually, because it certainly has some significant spiritual illusions, right? It talks about the mystical trinity. It talks about the three um, cardinal virtues or the three supernatural virtues of faith, hope, and charity. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, Christianity was born in a unique kind of crossroads. It literally on the crossroads of civilization. I mean, the bridge that from Africa to uh, Europe and Asia, where all our early ancestors came into the rest of the world, is through uh, Palestine. It also, during the time of, of, the, of Jesus, was a crossroads of ideas, east and west. Now, again, we've been very influenced by the western version of Christianity, but the birth of Christianity really is a merger of Eastern and Western ideas. It's also a merger of a strong, the Jewish heritage, the faith of Israel and its scriptures, as well as the philosophical tradition of the Greeks. In other words, what uniquely makes Christianity are all these forces coming together. And probably, is there nowhere where that is more demonstrated in the unique monotheism of Christianity, and that is our doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, most likely, it would have been almost impossible to articulate the doctrine that we have in our Nicene Creed if it hadn't been for very devout, very intelligent leaders of the church who also had at their disposal a command of Greek philosophy. So it's really a Trinitarian God that's borne witness in the Bible that's explained with the help of philosophy. But you know, I don't really want to do the philosophical background of the Trinity. Maybe we can do that sometime on a Wednesday night or a special series. But there's a kind of intuition towards the Trinity, which I think is appropriate to talk about. Again, it's not a doctrine you can come up with on your own. All right? It is a revealed doctrine. The idea of the Trinity is something that only can come through revelation. But once you believe in a Trinity, or once you have an intuition towards it, then you can begin to see that there is a lot of threes out there, and that there is something unique, and I would argue it was magical, about the number three. The Latin phrase, omni trium perfectum. Everything that comes in threes is perfect. And any of you who have done any work in communication, you know there is the principle of three, whether you are in writing or in speaking. Okay? You know, we joke about the three-point sermon, okay? but there is a long tradition, and also now there's a lot of study, that there's something about the mind that is attracted to three. And actually, there's something about four that makes people a little bit bored or they begin to lose interest. Okay? That's why we like three strikeouts, right? The walks are not so fun, right? <laughs> you know, the, the principle of three is everywhere, and it's, all, it's in all kinds of different religions, okay? For instance, it's not only in Christianity, but there's all kinds of threes in Hinduism. There's the three jewels of Buddhism. Uh, there's the three pure ones of Taoism. Um, three is a very important number in, among the rabbis in Judaism, in the Torah. Three is the basic number of a chord. You need three notes to make a chord. So there's a sense where um, the number of three kind of surrounds us 
and 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 invites us to 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 uniquely think about things. And there's something very inviting about the three. Now, in our in our Hebrew scripture reading from Proverbs, even though it's from the Old Testament, this this particular passage, um, when Jews began speaking Greek, okay, when the Jewish faith and, and the Bible of the New Testament, all right, the Bible that the early followers of Jesus read uh, was the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Hebrew was almost like a liturgical language in the first century. It's come back alive, but the followers of Jesus, for the most part, would read their Hebrew scriptures in Greek. And particularly this Proverbs, was something that created a lot of speculation, you know, between the time of the end of the Old Testament and the period that Jesus and Christianity arose. And it's this idea that the God who is unknowable, okay, Yahweh, the one who you can't even speak his name, right? Okay, you can't even speak his name in Judaism. We don't really know how it's pronounced, because it's a name that should not be spoken, because God is so greater than we are. We sang holy, holy, holy earlier tonight, okay? Earlier today. Uh, and that means very different, very different, very different. We talked about this Wednesday night. Okay? It doesn't mean I'm better than you, I'm better than you, I'm better than you. Okay? Or don't smoke, don't smoke, don't smoke, whatever you were supposed to not do as a kid. Alright? No, it means really different, really different, really different. And this idea of the majesty and the absolute solitary nature of God. That there is no other one like God. God alone is God. And, and it creates kind of a distance, right? Christianity inherited from Judaism that there is a strict separation between the creator and the creation. So this idea that God's wisdom is how God created, by the time that Jesus in Christianity emerges, wisdom, the wisdom of God had become almost personified. That there's almost, when God speaks his word, sometimes it's logos word, sometimes it's his wisdom, Sophia, in Greek. But there was this idea that if the unknown God is going to be made known, if the God who's totally self-sufficient is going to create a dependent universe in which God is involved with, then that's part of where this idea of God as creator, where you begin to have this, if you would, um, a two-ness, at least a two-ness in God. And it, it wasn't such a huge leap, okay, with these Greek-speaking Jews, that they already had this idea that God has his logos, that God has God's wisdom, God's Sophia, that there's also the spirit of God. So part of the language of the Trinity was already floating around in, in Judaism. Um, and this idea that the Trinity represents the creative power of God, the bringing of life into the world. Um, one of the worst ideas I ever had in my life, okay, I've had some bad ideas in my life, was on a mission trip. We were down in North Carolina, and I had a hundred, oh, no, not that trip I had about 80 people I needed to find work for. So we were building two habitat houses. I made connections with different non-for-profits in the greater Asheville, Madison County area down there. And this one non-for-profit had been donated a house, a piece of property, but the house needed to be destroyed. Okay. So I had about a dozen 
high school guys, lacrosse players, football players, knuckleheads, right? Okay, okay. And I thought, what better job than to give a bunch of teenage boys the opportunity to destroy a house? I mean, my, my guys at home did that just naturally, tried to destroy the house, all right? So I thought, this will work out really well. Well, I had to cancel it day two because they took the job too, they were too enthusiastic. For instance, they decided, wouldn't it be fun to take out a window with your head? Wouldn't it be decided, instead of using a sledgehammer, to run as hard as you could into a wall? Uh, day two, after the fifth trip to the emergency room and seven tetanus shots, my youth director said, please, Bill, stop this. <laughs> and I did, right? So destruction is a lot easier than creation, right? Okay. Uh, of course, destruction also creates all kinds of collateral damage. You know, I, I think I've lived my whole shadow, the whole shadow of my life under the possibility of the destruction of the world. Nuclear war. You know, I, I don't remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I was a baby during that. We found out afterwards that Nixon seriously considered using nuclear arms four to six times. Um, killer small, pollution, the collapse of the ecosystem. Uh, nuclear accidents. These are all the fruits of what humanity has done and can do. And, and even the Christianity I grew up in, if humans weren't going to destroy the world, then God was going to, right? I, I grew up with all kinds of second coming, uh, preaching, antichrist, the world's going to end. And it was interesting, certain, I, I always, I, eventually, part of the reason that drove me away from that Christianity was we'd have these sermons about the Antichrist coming, the world being destroyed, and people looked happy about that. They were excited about that. There's something fundamentally wrong about that approach, right? Because the, the Trinity is life-giving. God is the giver of life. The creation of the cosmos being created in the image of God means that we can bring good things into the world, that we are creators. Okay? Now, because we are fallen, because we do not follow God, we can use this God-given power, God-like power, to do horrible things. And the history of civilization is one of destruction. But this idea of the Trinity is, is in part born out of God's creative, powerful, loving force. But for me, the best way to talk about the Trinity is to talk about the nature of divine love. St. Augustine wrote a very important book called On the Trinity. It's a long book. And in the Trinity, he has a, he has a series of uh, analogies for us to try to wrap our mind around the Trinity. Now, it's not his favorite analogy, but my favorite analogy he comes up with is the Trinity of love. In any act of love, there's always a threeness there. Okay? You have the lover, the beloved, and the love between them. Right? There's a kind of threeness there in every act of love. This Wednesday night, I talked about, I got together last Sunday with, with all my sons, and there is something that you could call the love of the born men for each other. Okay? You know, we are barbarians, but we're sensitive barbarians. Okay? And, and there's a lot of love. Okay? And when, if you talk about the love that the Boer men have for each other, there's a unity in that. 
But there's all kinds of complex relationships in the middle of that, right? There's four sons, they love each other, they have individual relationships, uh, they love me, I love them, and there's all kinds of uh, complexity. But if I say, what does it mean for the boar men to love each other, that's, that is a unity, that's a one thing. And so when we talk about the fact that God is love, then what that implies is that there's a completeness in God. God didn't create because God had to, okay? Sometimes, I've even heard this from preachers, well, God, you know, created because he needed something to love. It's almost like God was, was lonely, okay? All right? All right? And no, no. God created out of freedom. But he was motivated by love. But God was already complete in the love God has within God. So Jesus in John is talking about the love the Father has for the Son, the love that Jesus has for the Father. And that connected with that is what Jesus leaving is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's a profound thing to say that God is love. Okay? In many ways, that's a uniquely Christian idea. Okay? Both Judaism and Islam talks about the loving God. And there's a lot of love and grace in both of those religions. But the fact that God is love, I think, is a uniquely Christian construct. Even when modern people talk about all there is, you know, all you need is love and things like that, even if they don't believe in Christianity, that idea has really been borrowed from the Christian faith. You know, um, Hans von Balthasar, I think one of the greatest thinkers of the 20th century, says this. Once a person learns to read the signs of love and believe it, love leads him or her into the open field wherein he himself can love. No one can resolve a mystery into dry concepts and explain how it is that God no longer sees my guilt in me, but only in his beloved Son, who bears it for me, or how God sees this gift transformed through the suffering of love and loves me because I am the one for whom his son suffered in love. But the way God, the lover, sees us is in fact the way we are in reality. For God, this is an absolute and irrevocable truth. Because God so loved the world, he sent his beloved son, who loved us so much that he was willing to die for us. And because of this, God, in God's love for us, not only as creator, but because of God's great sacrifice in Christ, we are his beloved as well. And the gift of the Holy Spirit, which we talked about last week, is the love of God living out in our midst. So in reality, when we love each other as Christians, it's the love of God in us, through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, loving the Christ in the other. That's why we don't always have to even like each other, okay? It's nice when we do. That's also why you just can't write somebody off. Because they're a reflection of the divine nature. You know, I, I shared this story last fall. Um, you know, this is the first Father's Day without my dad. And um, I actually realized, too, that... Uh, I, I not only my, the weekend that we buried my father, um, a young a woman who was like a daughter to me also passed away, and I realized I was not going to hear. She always sent me 
I was kind of a surrogate father for her. She always sent me a happy Father's Day. So I'm feeling some double absence this, this Father's Day. I'm very grateful. I have a wonderful family, and I'm thankful for that. But life is bittersweet, isn't it? Right? Yeah. Um, anyway, um, I shared this story. I, I think I shared a sermon. I know I wrote it. My father had a stroke uh, in and, and the beginning of August, and um, he was, you know, he was, he was kind of coming back from it, but he was, you know, in one of those states where he's not fully with us, right? Now, you know, my, my, my father and I had not the easiest of relationship, okay? We, uh, we did not see the world in very similar ways. Uh, we're both pretty strong-willed people, but we, we were actually worked on it really hard. And, in, and, and, you know, as adults and then in these last years, uh, we had developed a, a, a really good and loving relationship. We learned to be able to say we love one another. Uh, even that wasn't that wasn't natural or easy for us when we were younger, or when I was younger. Well, he was younger too. It took us a while, okay, but we eventually could do it. Um, but when he came out of the stroke, he had been you know maybe five or six days, and I was there, and our childhood minister was there as well, and was praying with him. And he just ex- woke up and, and exploded with emotion. I mean, he was weeping, and, but he said, I'm not weeping because I'm sad. I'm weeping because I'm happy. And he told Pastor Cook how much he loved him. And then he just told me how much he loved me. And the explosion of emotion and love that came from Dad at that moment, it literally took my breath away. My father told me he loved me, but never like that. And a few days later, as I sat with my father, I realized that I had been in the exact same hospital 36 years earlier to the day, watching my first son come into the world. And though I was tempted to call it a circle, I think it's closer to a linear line moving towards the weight of glory, or perhaps it's even a triangle. I was reminded of those overwhelming first moments when you hold your child for the first time. There's so much wonder and love that you feel like you're going to burst at the seams. Heaven cannot hold it, nor earth sustain it. It was like what I had felt from Dad at his awakening. With all the barriers down, the ones from the weariness of life, or the ones we had constructed, I felt the full force of what a father feels for his child, how dad loved me, a glimpse of the divine triune love in eternity. There are no barriers in the divine love. And though we're human, and we are dust, we still are sons and daughters of the living God. And the doctrine of the Trinity invites us to participate and the love God has for God's self because of Jesus, the gift of the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let us stand and proclaim what we believe in the words of the Apostles.